All right, so we are uh, working through some psalms, and today we are going to look at Psalm 11, and uh, you know if, if um, oh kids, yeah, kids you are dismissed to go to children's church, there they go. You know, I, I ask people, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And so many times people go, oh, I love the Psalms. I love the Psalms. And I think it is because the Psalms are so real life. All right? In the first 11 Psalms, David is crying out to God to help him in the pain he is in. Uh, he's being pursued by enemies. In uh, Psalm 3 He's fleeing for his life from his own son who wants to kill him. In Psalm 4, he cries out in distress. In Psalm 5, he says, Consider my groaning, O Lord. In Psalm 6, he says, My eyes waste away because of grief, because of all of his crying. Psalm 7, Save me from all my pursuers. Deliver me. Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? He's very honest. I feel like you've forgotten me, God. Okay, And then today is Psalm 11. Now, in Psalm 11, we don't know the, the exact circumstances, but it's probably him being pursued by his enemy, Saul, King Saul. So David is not the king yet, but Saul is the king. And Saul became insanely jealous of David because he could see that God's hand was on David. So he's jealous of David. He's gathered 3,000 troops and is tracking David down throughout the wilderness and throughout the desert. And uh, David has some men with him, and his men tell him, David, just quit. Flee for the mountains. Forget this whole thing. You don't, you don't need this. And David takes that advice and he says, no, I'm not going to quit. Remember that, that poem by Richard, is it Kipling? What is it? If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Right? David's not going to flee. So let's take a look at Psalm 11 to the choir master, a psalm of David. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you, my, my advisors, how can you say to my soul, and now he's going to quote their advice to him. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. It's dark, you can't see. There's 3,000 troops with their arrows ready to shoot him. Just flee, David. Get out of town. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? Everything's falling apart. Just flee, David. And now David talks to himself. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. We'll talk about what that means. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So let me, let me break this into four points. And uh, the, the first point, we'll talk about this advice to flee. And then we'll talk about what it means that the foundations are, are destroyed. And then we're going to talk about David's refocusing. So there's an F word there, right? So we got flee, we've got foundations. And now David refocuses on the Lord. He refocuses on the sovereignty of God and what God may be up to in his own life and then what God's up to with the wicked. Right? And then it ends with the fact that the righteous will see the face of of God. All right, so there's our, our little four point outline. So let's talk about this, this concept of fleeing. Okay, the advice that, that uh, he is getting is flee to the mountains. Now, David is appalled with this advice. Right? My trust is in the Lord. My advisors are telling me to flee. No, I'm not going to flee. I, in fact, he's appalled, but here's the, the kind of the, uh, the, the contradiction. As he writes this psalm, he's in the middle of fleeing. He's appalled at the advice to flee, but he's in the middle of fleeing. In fact, in 1 Samuel, which is about David, uh, David and Saul, ten chapters are devoted to David fleeing from Saul. The word flee itself is used several times. Okay? If you remember uh, Psalm 3, when it, it, part of the psalm is the, the little subtitle. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So, so why is David upset with the advice to flee when he's in the middle of fleeing. And I think what, what you have to do when there seems to be some kind of contradiction is you say, well, maybe there's a nuance here that we need to explore. And I think the nuance is this. There's two kinds of fleeing. There's faithless fleeing, and there's faithful fleeing. Faithless fleeing is when you say, I just totally call it quits. I don't need this. I deserve better than this. And it gives up on God being in control and having a purpose for the trial. I quit. What's most important is my comfort. It's it's Jonah being called by God to go to Nineveh 
And Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which on a map is in the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. Right? God calls him one place. He says, I don't need this. And he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, which is kind of funny. Can you flee from the presence of the Lord? No. Be careful. A whale may get you. Right? Um, so that's, that's faithless fleeing. I deserve better than this. God's not in it. I quit. Okay? But, but then there's faithful fleeing. Faithful fleeing says, I trust that God is sovereign over everything. He has a, a purpose for this trial that I'm going through. Now, I may strategically step out of the way as Saul throws his spear at me several times, as 3,000 soldiers try to kill me, as I'm hiding out in caves, as I'm temporarily fleeing from my son Absalom who wants to kill me, but I'm not quitting on God. Okay? So, I don't think Scripture is saying you must stand there and take everything. There's a, there's a time to faithfully flee. In fact, Jesus fled a few times before he was crucified. John 8, 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's not cowardly to occasionally wisely say, I don't, I, I don't need to be in the direct line of assault. I'm not giving up on God, but I'm going to get out of here. John 12, 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Right? So, uh, David is fleeing, but he's not fleeing in fleeing number one. He's fleeing in fleeing number two. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which I still think is the second most well-read book. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Bef Here, I like to say it this way. Before you die, there's certain books you should read. Okay? And one of them is Pilgrim's Progress. But get it in the easy-to-read English version. Because I can't understand the King James Version. Okay? I prefer it with pictures, and it would be nice if somebody could make it all rhyme, but, okay. But John Bunyan um, was a Baptist living in Anglican England. And it was illegal to be anything other than Anglican. But he preached, and they arrested him, and they threw him in prison for 12 years. And to get out, all he had to do is say, okay, I won't preach anymore. He had lots of kids, he had a wife, but he stayed. Now, people would write to him for advice, and one question that was written to him was, should we always stand and fight? Or is it ever okay to flee persecution? 
interesting answer. And this is kind of King Jamesy, all right? Thou mayest do in this even as it is in thy heart. If it is in thy heart to fly, flee, right? Fly. If it's in thy heart to stand, stand. Anything but a denial of the truth. He that flies has warrant to do so. You have grounds to do so. Okay? He that stands has warrant to do so. Yea, the same man may both fly and stand as the call and working of God with his heart, uh, working of God with his heart may be. Okay? Um, then he says, Moses fled, Moses stood. David fled, David stood. Jeremiah fled, Jeremiah stood. Christ withdrew, Christ stood. Paul fled, Paul stood. Okay? So, there's, a, a, there's an element where your situation, your relationship with the Lord, your convictions, it's okay to flee, fleeing number two, not fleeing number one. Okay? Um, he does say, well, here are some some things to keep in mind, though, in making your decision. Do not fly out of a slavish fear. Okay? Don't, don't, don't just react out of pure fear. When thou art fled, do as much good as uh, thou canst. Okay? In other words, wherever you go, you don't get to quit. You're to do, to do good there. Right? Do not think thyself secure when thou art fled. Just as you can't flee from God, you can't flee from all the, the trouble that may come your way. Okay? If therefore, when thou hast fled, thou art taken, be not offended at God or man. If you flee but you get caught anyways, okay. And then I love this one. Hast thou escaped? Laugh. Has thou taken? Art thou taken? Laugh. See, I, I, I like to laugh. Whether you're taken or you flee, just laugh. And then this one, fly not in flying that thou mayest have ease for the flesh. What is that? Don't make your ultimate decision based on what's the easiest thing. The top question is, what will bring the most glory to God? Not what's the easiest thing for me. Oh, so you must stay, all, always choose the hardest? No. But if your highest value is your ease, then you're missing it. Okay? So, all that on the word flee. David, flee. They mean quit on God. He flees, but he's not quitting on God. Now, the next thing that comes up is this word foundations. They say to him, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, the, the, the word foundations is referring to God's standards. God's righteous laws and standards. And part of the foundations then would be the, the power institutions that either enforce those standards or go against those standards. You know, in, in essence, here's what they're saying. David, flee because King Saul himself has gone insane. He is demon-possessed. 
He's the one who should be upholding righteousness. And he unjustly is trying to murder you. And he's using all the resources of the government and the military against you, the righteous one. It's not just that there's one person out to get David. The whole foundations of society have turned upside down. We're living in an upside-down society. Do you kind of feel like that these days? Right? A, a song came to mind as I was thinking about this. You're going to go, oh, what, what beautiful hymn was it? Well, it's a song called Sympathy for the Devil. <laughs> Just as every cop is a criminal and all the sinners saints, heads as tails. Just call me Lucifer because I'm in need of some restraint. Uh, I, I think the stones have captured the heart of Satan. Reverse everything. Turn everything upside down. You know, it's one thing if you have an enemy. It's another thing if it feels like you're walking on quicksand and the whole of society is collapsing. The foundations are giving way. Do you know that this week, this last week, in the Netherlands, they had a beauty contest and the winner was a biological man. And we're supposed to just go, oh, isn't that wonderful that a man won the beauty? And you should see the faces on the ladies who didn't win. Do you know who the winner of uh, last year's NCAA women's 500-meter swimming event was? A biological man who got the trophy, but he also changes in front of the ladies in the locker room. And if they protest, they're the, uh, they're the ones who are uh, out of line. Okay. What's, what's scary, and, and by the way, let me say this. I actually have compassion for those who may have gender confusion. Okay. But the solution is not to make all of the rest of the world live in non-reality. And it feels like that's where we are. Okay? I feel like we're living in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Romans 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Now here's the thing. Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So when you reject the truth of God and his gospel, here's what happens. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. You say no to God, no, 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 long enough. And God sends by allowing just upside-downness to come our way. And people can't tell what's true anymore. Romans 1, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Romans 1 is basically saying if you're going to reject the Creator, then he will hand humanity over to mixed up thinking, so mixed up that anybody who's thinking correctly steps back and goes, what? That's kind of where we're at, and that's what David's advisors were saying. Quit. Flee. Why? Because there's no hope. All of society is falling apart. Now, I think I've done a good job making us feel real discouraged. But now, here's the heart of the message. Here's the heart of the psalm. David focuses on what's true, focuses on God. He focuses on, on three things. That God is sovereign. That he is working all things together for the good of the righteous. And that there's a day of judgment coming for the wicked. Okay, so for, first of all, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, that's not supposed to be a picture of God being far off and aloof sitting in heaven. No, it's a picture of God sitting as the sovereign ruler over the universe, ruling over every situation okay how how often has this happened to you a crisis hits and you're filled with an emotion maybe it's fear adrenaline discouragement depression and you start coming up with plans to solve the problem you're on the phone you're texting you're calling people you're you're pacing And it's not until hours, maybe even days later, that you even remember, oh yeah, there's God on his throne. I kind of forgot about him. I was so busy solving my own problem that I forgot that God is sovereign over this situation. I'm going to sound like a broken record because I refer to Romans 8.28 so much, but uh, it all boils down to Romans 8.28. The moment the crisis hits, we need to remember, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his Purpose. Now, for, for all things to be working together for good, now, that, again, that doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. What it means is even the bad things that happen, God is working it together for good, but for God to be able to make that promise, that means God is sovereign or in control of even that situation. Okay? Just reminding yourself of the sovereignty of God. And it's so easy to forget. I mean, I've preached sermons on the sovereignty of God, pulled away from church and in traffic, totally forgot about it. Right? On, on Mother's Day, 
we talked about Esther. Do you know that um, the book of Esther, it's in the Old Testament, there are some people and some lists of books from ancient times that did not include Esther in the canon. In other words, they didn't think Esther should be included. And when scholars are asked, well, why, why would they leave Esther out? Well, it's because God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. God is not referred to once. But there is no other book in the Bible that is as blatantly about God's sovereignty over a crisis situation than the book of Esther. You know, quick summary, the Jews are going to be annihilated. And it just so happens that the king and the queen of Persia have had a fallout, and the king has banished Queen Vashti, uh, Vashti away. And it just so happens that the king's advisors say, we should, we should build a harem for you. And it just so happens that the most beautiful, charming girl in this harem happens to be a Jewish girl named Esther. And it just so happens that the king makes Esther the queen. And it just so happens that she is willing to approach the king and risk her life informing him of this plot to kill the Jews. And it just so happens that the evil man behind the plot is hung from the, his own gallows that he was going to use to kill Esther's uncle. And it just so happens that Esther's uncle is promoted to be the highest official in the land. Clearly, God is sovereign. So the first thing David does in this panic, and even in this advice, is he says, now wait a minute. Remember, God's on the throne. Remember, Romans 8, 28, applies to my situation. Each of you came in here with a, with a worry, right? Does Romans 8, 28 apply to even that? Okay. Now, the next thing David focuses on is... And did I, put, I, don't, I don't think I have the verse up here, but in your, your bulletin, it says, his eyes, God's eyes, uh, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. It's like his eyelids. What is, what is that? And the best excla- explanation that I've heard is that God is so concerned about your situation that his eyelids are squinting to look at you. He's squinting because he's so concerned about you. Now, it says his eyelids test. Okay, what's going on here? Well, David is reminding himself that God's in control, and this trial is a test for the righteous, for him, to make his faith even stronger. Okay? In 1 Peter, Peter says, in this you rejoice, okay, your salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter's acknowledging you're going through some trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested genuineness. You know, God does us the favor of not just letting us be flabby Christians, but he gets us in shape by seeing us through situation after situation after situation, and it's testing and proving the genuineness of our faith. That should encourage us and give glory to him. Okay? Abraham's faith was tested. You're going to have a baby. Wait, 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 wait. He's 100, and then he has a baby. And then God says, oh, go put him on the altar and stick a knife in him. And God rescues him from doing that, but his faith was tested. Moses spends 40 years in the desert being tested. David spends all these years fleeing from Saul before he becomes the leader. Even Jesus spends 40 days in the desert being tested before he goes into ministry. Don't forget the sovereignty of God and that God is squinting as he is, is helping you through this trial to make you stronger. Okay? Now, the last thing he focuses on is the destruction of the wicked. Verse 5. But his soul, God's soul, hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then he says, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, some translations, fire and brimstone. You go, where does where that phrase come from, fire and brimstone? Right here. Let, let him rain fire and brimstone and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So what David is doing here is he's taking solace in the fact that God hates wickedness and violence as much as David hates it, and that God is a just God who will actually punish the wicked. Right? Fire and brimstone reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm being tested, and the wicked will be judged. I had a conversation with, uh, with somebody this last week who, um, let's put it this way, they had a conversation with somebody else that wasn't a conversation. It turned into um, just an abusive attack. And... Um, he said, how are you dealing with that? And here's what they said. The person who attacked me will have to stand before God and give an account for their conduct. And I think I can stand before God and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because they didn't retaliate. The justice of God, the judgment of God, 
reminding ourselves that all things will be taken into account and there will be punishment for those who don't repent. It helps us get through the craziness of this life. Okay. Now, last thing. By, by the way, let, 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 me, let me share this thought. Um, there are some really, really wicked people. I'm listening to a, a podcast now. Maybe some of you are listening to it. It's on the Cold War. And um, there, was a, there was a guy, he was uh, Stalin's hatchet man. It's uh, Lavrenti Berea. And he sent 15 to 25 million people to the gulags. Just horrible, miserable conditions. His hobby was raping young girls. Now, some people say, I can't believe in a God who would send somebody to hell. And I think there are just as many people who would say, I can't believe in a God who doesn't send certain people to hell. David is just reminding himself that there is a day of justice coming. Now, some of you may be going, okay, this is all helpful. Remember, remember God is sovereign. Remember Romans 8, 28. Remember there's a day of justice. But what should I do in my particular situation? Just remember these things, or should I take action? Now, um, I wish I could give us all a cookie-cutter answer to that question for your particular situation. But it's not that easy. Let me give you two, two pictures of David. One, David seeing that there's a giant named Goliath taunting Israel, and David, trusting in the sovereignty of God, goes to war against Goliath. Scenario number two, paradigm number two. Saul's trying to kill David two times. David has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't. He says, God, you're sovereign. You've got this. Right? I can't tell you what to do in your particular situation. Think about those two paradigms. But the big point is, don't flee to the mountains. You may flee temporarily, but trust in God that he is sovereign, that he's squinting as he's looking at your situation. There is a day of justice, and maybe you're to take direct act action, or maybe you're to just say, God, I trust you. Okay? But the last thing that we want to look at is the face of God. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now this is, this is interesting, because remember Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. Show me your face. And God said, I can't show you my face. You'll be destroyed. So he puts him in the cleft of the mountain, and he covers Moses' eyes, and he passes by, and Moses sees kind of the afterglow of God. That's the closest a human can be to seeing God. Right? But 
after we live this life, after we are totally sanctified and perfected, this is what, and I'm going to skip the Matthew verse, but the Revelation verse says this. Here's our end state. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the new heaven and the new earth, and his servants will worship him. And here's the climax of the Bible. They will see his face. It's called the beatific, beatific vision, where the greatest joy and pleasure for eternity will be seeing the face of God. And his name will be on their foreheads. We're his. He's ours. And we behold the face of God. That's what gets David through his trials. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know the heart of everyone here today. You know what worries and maybe even what enemies uh, each one has. And Lord, it's easy to want to quit, to want to flee, to want to say all oh, the foundations are giving away. But thank you for David. David, who, who cries out and is very real in his prayers, he reminds us that you are sovereign, you are in control of even this situation. You're very concerned as we walk through trials and there is a day of justice coming. And then, Lord, for eternity, we will see your face. Lord, I pray that these truths would strengthen us and encourage us and give you glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.